Everybody else, Isaiah chapter 61 in your Bibles tonight. Isaiah chapter number 61. Isaiah chapter number 61. Once you have found that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Isaiah chapter 61. Let's look at the first three verses. These are some verses to someone who's a uh, regular church attender, regular student of the Bible. You're quite familiar with these verses. Look at them with me. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bro- uh, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be glorified. We're going verse by verse to the book of Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah for a long time now. And I have no control over the current events, but I do get to control, uh, I, we do get to see what, what, where we're at in the Bible. And I would have titled this Bible study this regardless of the current events, but our title of our Bible study tonight is Peace in Israel Forevermore. We'll see that throughout this passage tonight and the Bible study that we do. We're going to be in a lot of passages of Scripture tonight. And I think what we'll see is that the Lord is on the side of Israel, His people. Let's pray together. Lord, help us tonight as we go through the Bible. Lord, we seek to understand this passage. It is so rich and so deep. It's an ocean that really we never would find the bottom of. But Lord, as we seek to understand the passage on some level, give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, guide me, help me to be... Guarded in what I say, and Lord, help me to be accurate in what I say. Help me to speak truth, and Lord, not emotion. And God, we want your uh, we want your uh, approval on the Bible study. We want uh, everything that's said to honor you. And so, Lord God, we pray in that vein tonight. Lord, help us to leave here, uh, Lord, uh, more sure of our faith, more sure of the Word of God. As a result, in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. I, with great horror, have watched the events that have taken place like you over the last uh, uh, week and a half here. And uh, I am not someone who stays in touch with the news normally. I don't watch the news. I gave up watching the news five, six years ago. I get a little bit of the news, uh, just a snippet of the news, a handful of times a week. And Sometimes I'm too busy to even do that. Uh, so come the Sunday after the terrorist attack in Israel, I, I was not aware of what had happened. I had no idea of what had taken place. And a couple of people came up and asked me if I knew about it. And then later that day I started getting text messages. And so I went home and, and I turned on the news to see what indeed had happened and uh, was horrified to find out of the atrocities in Israel. The terrorists that had broken through the walls and had uh, raped 
women in the street and left their naked bodies laying on the road after they had killed them. And Without getting into too many gruesome details tonight, the babies that were murdered and just um, the horrible things that had happened over there. We turn on the news and we see that there are a variety of perspectives and opinions depending on the channel that you happen to tune into. And I really, one of the reasons why I gave up on watching the news a handful of years ago is because I really think it's hard to find an objective view of world events. When you turn on Fox News, I'm just going to give you my opinion tonight, so I'm going to preface that this way. When you turn on the Fox News, I think that it's slanted um, hatefully to the right. And when you turn on CNN and MSNBC, I think it is slanted hatefully to the left. And I'm not a fan of any of those channels. I think ABC and NBC and CBS are also slanted to the left. And I, I don't want you to tell me what to think. I want you to tell me the facts and let me develop what I think on my own. And it's hard to find a news channel that will do that. And so largely, I've just given up on our news industry. In our world today, and when you turn on the news, all the same, there is a spirit of anti-Semitism in our world where people hate the Jews. I want you to understand that when the terrorist attacks happened on September 11th in America, all of us here were horrified over what had happened. And no one, very few Americans who were uh, uh, just for this country, objected to us going over and finding the terrorists and bringing them to justice or killing them. Many civilians died in that, and I'm not never for a civilian's death. I think that's tragic any time a civilian dies. Why is it that we, we, we uh, many people didn't care about civilians that died when American blood was shed, but now all of a sudden we care about civilians when it comes to Israelis that are just trying to defend themselves? You say, Pastor, it sounds like you've already made up your mind that you're on the side of Israel and you're not on the side of Palestine. And you'd be correct. But I didn't come to that conclusion on my own. I've come to that conclusion because I've spent my life reading the Bible. and I've spent my life studying the Bible. And I believe that the Israelites, to this day, are God's chosen people. And I believe that there is a, a war going on, a spiritual war going on of good and evil. And I believe that Satan hates God and hates God's people, and there is a spirit of hatred toward the Jews that has existed throughout history since God called Abraham and um, blessed him and his seed. The Jews have been persecuted for a whole for 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 in their entire existence, and that persecution will continue until Jesus rules and reigns in Jerusalem one day. As we open up the Bible and we look at Isaiah chapter 61, what we find is that the Lord Jesus one day will fulfill the rest of this prophecy. He has fulfilled part of it. He has fulfilled some of it in His first coming. There's a portion of this prophecy that will be filled in its totality when He comes again. And so I'm not going to stand up here and just interject my opinion on world events Someone asked me what I thought that these events mean in the scope of uh, end-time events. And I want to be very clear on this. I have speculations because I know the Bible. I don't think it's appropriate for me to get up here and tell you what I think that the end-time events mean in the scope of, um, or what the current events mean in the scope of end-time events. 
Lots of pastors have done that over the years and have been proven to be wrong. I have some speculations that may play out to be right, may not play out to be right. If you want to know what my speculations are, call me on the phone, stop by my office, I'd be happy to share that with you. But it's just simply speculatory, and I think for a pastor to get up and say them emphatically is misleading at best. But I will say this tonight, the end of the story is written in the Bible. We don't have to guess about the end of the story when it comes to Israel. The Bible directly tells us. You say, Pastor Lejeune, do you believe that, uh, that uh, the Israelites uh, are the Israelites, or do you believe that that to be the church? And I would say, you, you cannot objectively read the prophets, major and minor, and come to any other conclusion than that God is not done with Israel. He sent these people to speak these words to His people, and these prophecies have not yet come true. If you objectively read through the prophets, you can only come to one conclusion. God is not done with the nation of Israel. He is still going to do great things with them. He is still going to sit amongst them, and He's going to rule and reign. And I just want to say tonight... Don't get so caught up in the news cycle that you fear that Israel will just be obliterated off the map. That's not going to happen. Israel has been in place uh, since uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And while they have been scattered abroad, the nations, uh, they have always survived. And there are still a people who speak the same language and have held strong to their culture. God is not done with them. He's working primarily through the church right now. But one day, he's going to rule and reign through Israel. So let's get into the outline tonight, and let's see how Isaiah 61, we're going to focus on 1 through 3 tonight. We'll look a little bit closer at verses 4 through 11 uh, next week uh, in the weeks to come. Okay, let's jump in here tonight. Number one, notice the mission of the Messiah. The mission of the Messiah. Isaiah 61 is a messianic chapter. We can prove that, and I will in just a moment. But look with me at verse number 1. This is speaking of, as Isaiah would be writing, the coming Messiah. Alright, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. This is the mission statement of the coming Messiah as far as Isaiah saw it. Verse 2, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be Glorified. Now, I want you to look closely at the end of verse 3 where it says that he might be glorified. Who is it? Uh, what is the purpose? What is the mission of the Messiah? To bring glory and honor to the God of heaven. To bring glory and honor to his Father. The Messiah would come and he would do these things for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to the Lord. Now, let me be clear on this. If Jesus came to earth to bring glory and honor with his life to the Lord, then you and I should live our lives to bring glory and honor to the Lord. At the end of the day, that is how we ought to live our lives, to bring glory and honor 
to the God of heaven. So let's see how this is the mission statement of the Messiah and how that Jesus is that Messiah. Notice letter A, Jesus claimed the prophecy. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 4 in your Bibles. You want to put a marker in Isaiah 61. Luke chapter number 4 in your Bibles. And in Luke 4, we find Jesus. He comes into His hometown of Nazareth, and he's there visiting family and friends, and he makes his way on Sabbath, Shabbat, or the Sabbath, into the synagogue as he had done his whole childhood, and he comes back into town, and he walks in, and he takes up the scroll of Isaiah, he turns to what would be our chapter 61, it wouldn't have been divided that way in Jesus' day, but he finds Isaiah chapter, our Isaiah chapter 61, he finds this passage, and he reads this passage passage aloud there in the synagogue in Nazareth. Look at Luke 4, look at verse 16. The Bible says, And he, speaking of Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, here it is, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He had sent me to heal the brokenhearted and uh, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering in the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, when Jesus read that, closed it and sat down, everybody looked at him as if to say, what was that supposed to mean? And Jesus took all doubt out of the room when he declared, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled in your ears. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to make uh, to, to fulfill that promise of the anointed one coming. And this is my mission statement for my life. Jesus claimed the prophecy to be his own. But notice not only the uh, Jesus claimed the prophecy, notice letter B, Jesus carried out. The prophecy. Jesus carried out the prophecy. And this is where we're going to spend our time tonight. Is taking this prophecy, this mission statement apart, phrase by phrase, and seeing how Jesus has fulfilled pieces of it, and there is other pieces of it that He's going to finish fulfilling in the days to come. Okay? So, uh, let's see here. Uh, notice, first turn over to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, uh, Isaiah 61, uh, he declared, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Was the Spirit of the Lord God upon Jesus? Because that would be a qualifier for him to be the Messiah, that he would have to have the Spirit of the Lord God upon him. Well, Matthew three sixteen and 17 tells us just that, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Look at, with me at Matthew 3 and look at verse 16. The Bible says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened upon him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here we have all three persons of the Trinity 
present distinctly at the same time. The voice of the Father, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove, and Jesus incarnate, Jesus in the flesh, all in one place. What did the Spirit of God do? He came down and rested upon Him. And so, when Isaiah declared that the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord, would be upon Him, sure enough, Jesus had a physical rendering of the Spirit of God in the form of a dove coming and descending upon Him. So we see that Jesus uh, was indeed, or is indeed, the Messiah. But not only uh, do we see that He had the Spirit of the Lord God upon Him, let's look at Isaiah 61 again. And uh, keep in mind that this passage was quoted by Jesus in Luke 4 with one phrase missing, and we'll highlight that here a little bit later. But let's notice here in Isaiah 61... Uh, each of these phrases and then work through the Bible to see how the Lord God accomplished this mission statement. So notice there in Isaiah 61 and notice in verse 1, it says there, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me, here it is, to preach good tidings unto the meek. To preach good tidings unto the meek. Did the Lord Jesus preach good tidings Unto the meek. Yes, he did. Go with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. And let's look at this sermon on the mount as it's known. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus gathered the Israelites and those who cared to hear together. In fact, verse 1 tells us that it was his disciples, those who wanted to learn from him. And Jesus taught the disciples. Uh, he taught them a message unto the meek. Look at verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, look at chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, the last two verses there. Verse 28 and 29. So Jesus came to uh, uh, preach good tidings unto the meek. He came to preach good tidings unto the poor. Here Jesus is preaching the good word to them. And look at, look at the response of the people at the end of His sermon. Verse 28, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His doctrine, for He taught them as one having authority. And not as the scribes. So Jesus fulfilling that part of the mission statement here of proclaiming good tidings unto the meek. And Jesus is definitely doing that. And listen, he did that for the entire three and a half years of his ministry. He went around and he preached. Now, a little uh, note here. Have you ever noticed that you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you find maybe the same parable or sermon and it's a little bit different maybe from one parable to the next, and maybe you think, well, is there a contradiction in the way it was recorded? And the answer is no. Jesus would have gone from city to city uh, stumping or preaching and would have preached the same sermon in multiple locations. And, you know, I preach at 8.15 and I preach at 10.30 and I have the same notes, but they're not exactly preached the same way. Sometimes I say things a little bit different from one sermon to the next.
same sermon, but can be preached a couple of different ways. And so one of the Gospels records it as it's preached in one place, and another Gospel records it as it's preached in another place. And so the language can be a little bit different, not a contradiction, just a recording of it from different places that it was preached. Jesus preached good tidings under the meek the entire three and a half years, Sunday morning. I preached pretty hard about those that hurt the faith of children. And I would say this evening that God really only, or Jesus really only uh, preached scathing sermons at two groups of people. And that was the Pharisees and those that hurt children. Outside of that, the preaching of Jesus was laced with love and compassion and tender care. And uh, the Lord Jesus loved those who were meek and poor and looking to grow. So we see there that He preached good tidings unto the meek. Notice next that He... he the bind up the brokenhearted. That mission statement of bind up the brokenhearted. Back in Isaiah 61 and verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Did Jesus do that? Well, yes, He did. Turn over to Luke chapter 5 with me. Luke 5 and verse number 30. Jesus was constantly surrounded by those who were brokenhearted. Brokenhearted. You know what Pharisees do? They look down with a judgmental attitude on those who are broken. You know, sometimes people that are brokenhearted, they're not sitting around crying. Instead, they're covering up their broken heart uh, with very sinful living. I've told the story in here about the guy who approached me as I was just a college kid inviting kids to church in an apartment complex and he was covered in tattoos and he was driving a Harley and he was wearing all of the, the leather of, of a motorcycle uh, a biker and he looked like he had dipped his face in a tackle box piercings all over his face and uh, he was rough and gruff and rude to my direction and once I got past that inner shell that or rather the outer shell of, of gruffness and his denial that God existed I had a man who's standing there sobbing before me because he was broken hearted over a hardship that had happened in his life and a lot of times people that look like they are nasty and hateful and spiteful beneath the surface is a broken heart and the Lord Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted. Look at Luke chapter 5, verse 30. But the scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat, why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Who did Jesus come for? Those that were sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What did Jesus come to do? He came to heal up the brokenhearted. You say, Pastor Lejeune, if Jesus lived today and walked these neighborhoods, where do you think Jesus would be? I think Jesus would be walking the streets of places like Bridgeport and New Haven. And I think He would be walking through those streets with love and compassion in His eyes. And I think people would flock to Him to be helped. Because I think that's who Jesus, I know that's who Jesus is. Those who were the, the worst of society. And I mentioned this on a Sunday. Who were the publicans and sinners? That was a group of people that had been excommunicated from the synagogue because of a wretched lifestyle and told they were not allowed to enter. They were not allowed into a structured religion, but they found themselves at the feet of Jesus being helped. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. But notice also in verse 1, we find in the mission statement of the Messiah that He was going to proclaim liberty 
to the captives. Look down with me at verse number 1 of Isaiah 61. It says there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives. How did Jesus do this? How did He proclaim liberty to the captives? Let's look at a couple of verses here tonight. Turn over to Ephesians chapter number 4 in your Bibles. Ephesians 4 and verse number 7. I got asked about this uh, last Wednesday night after church by our good friend Danny down here. And so we're going to talk about that again, Danny. Ephesians 4, look at verse number 7. Use your Bible on a Bible study. Amen. Turn to those passages. Look with me there. The Bible says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now look at verse 9. Now that he ascended, was what is, what is it but he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up from above all heavens, that he might fill all things. What is that talking about? He descended into the earth? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means. We know from Luke that uh, Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise, was in uh, was within conversational range of the lake of fire. Why? Because the rich man and Lazarus were able to communicate with each other from hell in Abraham's bosom. I believe that when Jesus died, remember He told the thief, He said, uh, Thou shalt be with me in where, church? Paradise. He didn't say, Thou shalt be with me in heaven. He said, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so, uh, before heaven had been prepared, before heaven had been, uh, the mercy seat in heaven and had the blood of Jesus applied, uh, folks could not enter, sinners could not enter into heaven. So when they died, they descended into the lower part of the earth where Abraham's bosom was, and that was a holding place for them, a place of captivity for them until heaven was ready based on the death of Jesus the Messiah. And so when Jesus died, where did he go? He went down and he ministered to the captives. And then upon his resurrection from the dead, he released the captives from their captivity. He proclaimed liberty to them. Remember when Mary saw Jesus and she wanted to hug Jesus and Jesus said, do not touch me. I've not yet ascended unto my father. But then just a little bit later, he says to the disciples, put your hands in my prince and place your hand here in my side. They were allowed to touch Jesus when Mary hadn't, uh, wasn't able to. What happened between Mary and the disciples? Jesus had ascended up to heaven. He had taken his own blood that he had shed on the cross. He had sprinkled that on the mercy seat and he had opened up heaven for those who had been held in Abraham's bosom, then to ascend up into the heaven and be there uh, forevermore. And so he proclaimed liberty to the captives. Jesus fulfilled yet another one of the mission statements in Isaiah 61. So we see in verse 1, Jesus checks each of the box boxes of the Messiah's mission statement. Uh, let's look at verse number 2 in Isaiah 61, and we'll see the next part of this. Look here. To proclaim the acceptable year 
of the Lord. Did Jesus proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord? Yes, He did. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24 in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 24. Turn over there with me. Matthew chapter 24. And look with me at verse number 3. Matthew 24 and verse number 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us what shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? What are they asking him? They're asking him about the year of the Lord. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So, the rest of chapter 24 and the rest of chapter 25 are, is the Lord Jesus fulfilling this prophecy in Isaiah 61 of the proclamation of the year of the Lord. Now, I have taken the time to break down chapters 24 and 25 as I see them for you. I'm not going to do that again tonight. But turn over with me to verse number 36. Matthew 24 and look at verse 36. And in verse 36 and 37, we find the prophecy for those that live in the church age. It says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noe were, uh, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And so he proclaimed the details of the coming of the Lord, yet another one of the boxes checked of the mission statement of the Messiah. So we know that Jesus, He preached good tidings unto the meek. And we know that He bound up the brokenhearted. We know He proclaimed liberty to the captives. We know that He proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. Yet this next one, if we find in Isaiah 61, but when Jesus read this in Luke 4, He skipped this part. Okay, go back to Isaiah 61 and look at verse number 2. And if you read Isaiah 61 and you read Luke 4, there's one part that got skipped. Alright, this part gets skipped. Look here. To proclaim, verse 2, the acceptable day of the Lord, you won't find this next part in Luke 4. And the day of vengeance of our God. You don't find that in Luke 4. Why? Because Jesus has not yet fulfilled this one. He will fulfill this one in His second coming. Now, this is where we start to get into some prophecy. Turn back over to Matthew. Look at chapter 25. Proclaim, uh, and so the next one there is proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. That would be, I believe that's the next slide there of the Lord. There it is. Proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Look with me at verse number uh, Matthew chapter 25 and look at verse number 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory. This is not the first coming of Christ. Because He's talking about Himself and He says, I'm going to return in my glory. When the Son of Man shall, re- shall come in, in His glory, and all the holy angels unto Him, then shall, he sit, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. This has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus has not sat on a throne in His glory. Verse 32 here on earth. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Go with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah 14 
and verse number 1. The book of Zechariah is a fascinating book of prophecy. In fact, chapter, we're going to look at chapter 12, uh, somewhat chapter 12, 13, and 14. Uh, I, I read through those chapters in preparation for this Bible study, and uh, it is you can't put your Bible down as you read those chapters. It is fascinating to see how Israel ties into God's plan and how it is just laid out so bare and so clear in those chapters that God is not done with Israel. In fact, look at chapter 14. The Bible says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. And this is an Israeli, um, this is an Israeli prophet speaking to Israel. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. The Lord says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Now, these verses sound a whole lot like what happened in that terrorist attack a week and a half ago. The city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Did they not go in and rifle the houses and ravish or rape the women? This is exactly what happened. Now, I don't believe this to be a prophecy of what happened a week and a half ago. As we'll read a little bit more here in the verse, it's going to be far worse when this actually happens than what happened. In fact, look here. It says... And in and, and half of the city, this is speaking of Jerusalem, half of the city shall go forth into captivity. They just had a handful of people taken hostage, but it will be half of the city taken hostage. And the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So uh, we got a little glimpse of Zechariah 14 in this terrorist attack a week and a half ago where it's going to be far worse, where uh, Israel-hating anti-Semitic people go into Jerusalem. Half of the city is the houses are rifled, the women are raped, and, 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 and people are taken captive into, uh, into, the, uh, uh, into uh, enemy territory. Now, we know that God is not just going to let this sit and go untouched or unpunished. Look down at verse 12. And we find some of the most frightening verses in the Bible. Now, again, to my knowledge, this has never happened in human history. So this is a prophecy still yet to be fulfilled. Look at verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Now, listen up, church. If you want to know which side is the right side, you need to line up with Israel, not with Israel's enemies. Right here, Zechariah 14 tells us that the Lord will stand for His people against the enemies of Israel, against the enemies of Jerusalem. He will fight for Jerusalem. Look look here. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their holes. And their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them. And they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor. And his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at, or Judah shall fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, and of all the beasts that shall be in these tents at 
this plague. You say, Pastor, what is this describing? This is describing the great battle that will take place in the valley of Megiddo when the enemies of the world come down. And you can read 12, 13, and 14 and get the greater context here. But they will come down. The mountain will part in a great earthquake. And uh, the enemies of Israel will come riding together into the valley of Megiddo. And the Lord will descend with His saints. In fact, that's the word used in these chapters. And the Lord will fight against the enemies of Israel and their eyeballs will be consumed in their head, their mouths, will, uh, tongues will be consumed in their mouth, they will drop dead on the spot. In fact, Revelation tells us the blood will rise to the mantle of the horse. And so, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ will win the battle against the enemies of Israel and He will reign supreme from Jerusalem. What a day that will be. Now, Jesus left this one out, this phrase out in Luke 4, because this is one that will be accomplished when He returns the second time. So we see here yet another one of the mission statements of the Messiah. Go back with me to verse number 2 of Isaiah 61. We've got just a handful of minutes left, and I want to make sure we get done with point 1, and so next week we can get into point 2. Look with me at uh, the next one there, verse 2. The Bible says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Now, did Jesus accomplish this one? Yes. Will Jesus continue to accomplish this one? Is Jesus currently accomplishing this one? Oh, yes, He is. Let's see how this one works. Turn with me in your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. How does Jesus comfort those that mourn? That is such a rich question with such a rich, rich, rich answer. And for us, 2 Corinthians 1, for us to begin to understand the answer to this question, we need to understand the source of mourning. What causes us to mourn? The sin curse causes us to mourn. When someone sins against us, that causes us to mourn. When we sin, consequences come down upon our head, and that causes us to mourn. Only by pride cometh contention. When you're miserable in your marriage, or you're miserable in your work, or you're miserable with your children, or you're miserable uh, uh, in life that uh, with another relationship, that is a result of pride, and uh, that mourning is a result of sin. And sometimes... Our mourning has nothing to do with our direct sin or someone else's direct sin. Our mourning can just uh, be a result of living in a sin-cursed world. I think of my sister in Fiji who's had two miscarriages in the last year and a half. That is not a result of anyone's sin, I don't believe. That's a result of living under the sin curse. And that mourning of loss of life comes about of, of that sin curse. So what did the Lord Jesus do? What does He do to comfort those that mourn? He deals with the ultimate consequence of sin, which is death and hell. Look at Second Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God, look at this, of all comfort. The God of all comfort, who comforteth us, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. By the comfort therewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Oh, those are some beautiful verses right there. You know who comforts us? God comforts us. How does He do it? Verse number 3 tells us, Through 
The Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, what did Jesus Christ do to comfort us? He came and He died on the cross for sin. And through our salvation, we find a great comfort that awaits us in eternal life to know that Jesus died to heal us from the ultimate consequence of sin. But that's not the only way by which Jesus comforts us. That's not the only way that Jesus fulfilled this great uh, mission statement of comforting they that mourn. Turn over to John chapter number 14, if you will. John 14, and uh, look with me at verse number 26. John 14 and verse 26. Quickly get over there for me, and uh, we're going to try to wrap this up. John 14 in verse 26, what did Jesus promise before He left? He promised that not only would He comfort, He would send one to comfort. The Bible says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in My name, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, uh, whatsoever I have said unto you. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you. What did Jesus do? He came to comfort. Look at uh, John, or rather, yeah, look at John chapter number 12 for me. John chapter 12 and look at verse number 9. I put down the wrong passage here. Excuse me. Um, okay, we're, we're going to we're going to uh, forego that. But listen, Jesus comforts all those that mourn by saving us from our sin. And you know how else He does that? By providing us the Holy Spirit. It was Him that went to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit down to comfort us in our time of great mourning. So, uh, we see here that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the mission statement, except that one part, which He left out in Luke 4, He's fulfilled the mission statement uh, laid out for the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 61. Um, let's see here. Uh, what else or uh, what will be the result of Christ's mission as it is accomplished. Go back with me to verse number 3. Look with me, Isaiah chapter 61, or rather, right, Isaiah 61, and look at verse 3. What is the result? It says here, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them. In fact, I think I skipped that one. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. What does He give them? He gives unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. What a, what a thought. Imagine uh, for me, picture for me, that you have a Jewish man or Jewish woman, and they're standing there, and they've got ash on their head. They've got sadness in their heart. They're wearing filth. And the Lord Jesus comes up, and He brushes the ash out of their hair. And He wipes the soot off their face. And He anoints their head with the oil of gladness. He strips away uh, the clothing, uh, the cloak of sorrow, and instead puts on them a garment of praise. And He takes this Israelite that's downtrodden and broken, and He uh, takes away the ashes and gives them beauty. We know that they would tear their sackcloth and put ash upon their head as a sign of mourning. And uh, the ash is gone, and instead they're uh, arrayed with beauty. Uh, the mourning is taken away, and the oil of gladness dumped upon on their head. The, uh, the, the spirit of heaviness is taken away. Instead, they're clothed with a garment of praise. And what is the result of this? We'll look back at verse number 3. It says uh, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He might be 
glorified. They will be called oak trees or trees of righteousness. The Israelites will be known as the planting of the Lord that He might be what, church? Glorified. And that's the end of the day. That's the name of of what God is after is that His name is lifted up and glorified. Uh, Go with me to Isaiah 60. Just one page over. We were here just a couple of weeks ago. Look with me back at verse number 1. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine. Here, now, now remember, beauty for ashes, oil, oil of joy for mourning, and garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Look how this plays out in chapter 60. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and His glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Look at 19. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither uh, for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy glory, and thy God, thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thine everlasting light. We see that beauty for ashes. We see the oil of joy for mourning. We see the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And you know what I want to just say tonight by way of closing, if you're mourning tonight, if you're struggling tonight, the Lord God wants to take your ashes and He wants to give you beauty. He wants to take away your mourning and give you the oil of gladness. He wants to take away your spirit of heaviness and He wants to give you garments of praise. I hope that you'll allow Him to do that tonight. As you watch the news and you see the events unfold, don't let, uh, don't let anti-Semitic voices try to lead you into this moral equivalence game. The Lord God is on the side of Israel. The Lord God sides with Israel and God's people and Americans need to stand up and stand with and for Israel. And uh, we know the end of the story. We know that one day the Lord God will liberate them and they will reign Supreme. I want to show you one more thing tonight before we go. Would you look with me at Zechariah chapter 12? Go back with me to Zechariah. I want to show you a neat neat passage here. Zechariah chapter 12. And I want all of you on your own to read chapters 12, 13, and 14. Look at chapter 12 of Zechariah. Look down at verse number 10. Actually, that was what I meant to read to you earlier. Zechariah 12, 9 through 14. Zechariah 12. Let's Let's look at these verses. And then we'll, we'll, we'll shut it down. Look here. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning, where? In Jerusalem. As the mourning of uh, Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddon. So there's there's your idea of the valley of Megiddo. 
the mourning that will take place in that valley will be the death of those who came against uh, uh, Israel and came against the Lord. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, uh, the family of the houses of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. Why will they mourn? They'll mourn because they'll see the one whom they crucified coming back to save them and rescue them. And they'll realize the grave mistake of having rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They'll see the one whom they pierced coming to their rescue and they'll believe on Him and sorrow over the grave mistake they made some thousands of years earlier. What will Jesus do? He'll come and He'll save them from their enemies and He'll set them free from their captive. As you watch the news, you don't need to worry. The Lord God is in charge. Our faith should be in Him alone. Amen? Let's stand together. Next week we'll unpack the rest of chapter 61. Let's ask God to bless us as we go forth tonight. Let's ask God to help us to trade in our beauty for ashes, or ashes for beauty. Let's pray together. Thank You, Lord, for this time. Thank You for this Bible study. Thank You for the Word of God, how rich and true and deep it is. Thank You that we have a glimpse into the future of what, what, what is going to come about, what is going to happen. Lord God, help us to see the Bible not through any other... Or not, help us not to see the Bible through, uh, Lord God, uh, our own prejudices or struggles, but Lord, help us to look at it uh, objectively and purely. Lord God, give us understanding. Give us discernment. And Lord God, we do pray for protection of Your people. Lord God, bless us tonight as we go. Help us, Lord, to know Your joy in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great evening.